Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Annie Bell can't escape the dust. It's in her hair, covering the windowsills, coating the animals in the barn, and the corners of her children's dry, cracked lips. It's 1934, and the Bell Farm in Mulehead, Oklahoma, is struggling as the earliest storms of the Dust Bowl descend. All around them, the wheat harvests are drying out. People are packing up their belongings as the storms lay waste to the Great Plains. As the bells wait for the rains to come, Annie and each member of her family are pulled in different directions. Ray Meadows' new novel, I Will Send Rain, inspired by a Dorothea Lang photograph, is a story of motherhood and family, resilience, longing, fierce love, and hope. Ray Meadows will headline an event at the King's English Bookshop a week from today, on Thursday, August 18th at 7 p.m. Ray Meadows, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It's a delight. Uh, so I understand you were born in Brussels, but grew up in the Cleveland and San Diego areas. That is correct. Yeah, we moved around a bit. Um, so I don't really think of having kind of a home base, but I think moving around has helped me learn some new parts of the country, and I think it's helped me as a writer as well kind of become reattached to different landscapes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably an advantage, different uh, different scenes. So is your family in the military? Is that why you were born in Brussels, or...? No, you know what? My dad just worked for a company that that moved him over there for a while. Um, yeah, it would seem like it was, but no, he just did a variety of things, and we we kind of followed suit. Were Were you uh, quite young when you left? I wonder what you what your thoughts were on the on the terrorist attack there in Brussels. Oh, I was quite young. I was only um, you know not yet three, so I don't okay. have any memories of it. But I but I do you know I I certainly perk up when I when I hear of Brussels and and obviously the terrorist attack was devastating. So it's 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 a sad thing. I've, I've only been back um, as an adult. I've been to Brussels, but I don't have a, a real good set. I obviously don't speak Cornish, and mm. <laughs> so I, I don't have a strong connection. But um, yeah, it is, it's a, it's an interesting thing to have been, you know, born elsewhere. Before we move to the U.S., uh, as you, as your family did, <laughs> moved back, uh, Mercy Train, your novel, uh, I understand, is a bestseller in the Netherlands. And you understand I know it's it's very funny. I don't. I can't really explain that. I don't know what what um, a train, you know what kind of sparked something with the Dutch uh, with that story. Uh, but I'm. It's a pleasure to have that <laughs> to have that. Uh, I guess you'll. Uh, I guess. There. I guess you'll take it, right? It's uh, exactly. It's, it's exactly. I will. <laughs> That's right. Um, so you went to Stanford and uh, spent some years in advertising. Uh, I did, yeah. Then uh, you you lived for a while in, in Utah, MFA program, University of Utah. I did. I spent uh, two years at the at the creative writing um, program at the University of Utah, which were really life-changing years for me. I loved living in Salt Lake City and just given that time. To, I had I had come from San Francisco when I when I moved to Salt Lake City and just to be physically away from the life that I had been leading, leading and also just to have this dedicated two years to write was phenomenal. And I also, I'm, I'm still close with my um, a, a bunch of my classmates from that period, and I always feel very fondly for Salt Lake. I can't wait to come back. It's been many, many years. Yes, it'll be great to have you back in Utah. So, Thank you. Uh, I have to ask you about this. You answered phones at an escort service. <laughs> that inspired your first novel, Calling Out. It's true. Who would have thought in Salt Lake City? I um, when I was in grad school, I wrote obituaries at the Deseret News, and I answered phones at an escort service, which I think is long since defunct. Um, it was a certainly flexible hours, and it worked for being a grad student. And I was happy to get a novel out of it. I didn't go into it thinking that's what would happen, but it, it was a very specific experience that um, it was hard not to write about. It seemed that it was it would be a waste to not kind of try to convey a story that, that revolved around, because it is just a sort of marginal, marginal community in Salt Lake. So it, it was, um, yeah, I, <laughs> it was an odd choice, but it, it ended up working out well for my writing career. I should say Calling Out received the 2006 Utah Book Award for fiction, was named on several other lists. I, I just, before I drop this, um, is, is, is a job like that posted somewhere? How do you? You know what I I believe that when I first saw it, it was in um, I don't know if it was in. I mean, this was pre. It was not pre-internet days, but it was um, before. I think it was probably early Craigslist days, and it was listed on there, not listed as what it was. And I think I didn't know what it was. It was you know it was listed as phone 
manager for an entertainment company. So one might infer that that is something that's not quite on the up and up, but um, it took me to, to actually going into the office to understand what it was all about. Yeah, I guess there would be euphemisms uh, used. Uh, and uh, exactly. that must have been pretty interesting. So part of the day, obituaries, Des News, and then the, the part of the day at the the escort uh, service, what, what was writing obituaries like? It, <laughs> it was a real education. I did not have a, a very good understanding of um, LDS terminology, and I think writing obituaries was a very it was a crash course in in that, and just kind of understanding what the different terms meant, and and getting just a little bit of a better understanding of LDS culture, um, which I find I, you know I found very interesting. I, certainly living in Salt Lake, it's it's part of uh, part of the culture, and and I think it's when you move to a city, I one of the things I love best is kind of exploring and figuring out what cultural markers there are. So for me, it, it was it was great. And I and I think, obviously, the escort agency was a, a flip side of, of maybe the more senior side of things. But in its way, it was also educational about uh, the kinds of people that call and and the, the loneliness. I mean, for me, that was what I came away with, that, that most of the people who were calling were just very lonely. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was it was it was. Uh, I, I found it interesting and quite moving at parts. Even I mean, there were there were certainly some unsavory elements to it as well, but um, also some some moving moments as well. Yeah, I'm always interested. Uh, anybody has connections uh, to obituaries? I uh, I think I got into this a few years ago when I wrote the obituary for my father. Uh, oh, you yeah. know, how do you sum up a life? You know, especially someone so close oh. so close to you. And and then I, I took to reading obituaries and and you try to read between the lines a lot of times. Oh yeah, and I think that I think obituaries can are, are you know it's it can be a real art form. I mean, I think you're right, and summing up a life is incredibly difficult. And kind of picking out how you want to highlight someone's life, um, you make those choices and and write it. And I I think it's lovely, and I think it also can be cathartic to do. Um, and it's a it's a wonderful way to memorialize someone. I want to get into talking about I Will Send Rain, um, and, and so several different subjects for your books, calling out, of course, based on your experiences there at the escort service, uh, No yes. One Tells Everything, which has uh, won several uh, prizes, and then uh, Mercy Train. Um, understand uh, the, this this book uh, about the Dust Bowl yes. uh, started with a photograph. It did. You know what? I was reading, um, I happened to be reading a biography of Dorothy Lang, the photographer. I, I am interested in photography. I'm not any kind of expert, but I'm interested in it, and I happened to read this book. I was very familiar with her most famous photograph of the migrant mother, um, and I, but I read this book, and I kept coming back to this photograph of a, of a woman nursing her child on a, in a makeshift camp on the side of a California highway, and she was a Dust Bowl refugee, and the way that Lang captured this woman and her face, her face is her facial expression is one of real defiance and anger. And um, to me, I just couldn't let it go. I, I felt like she in the photo, this woman in the photo, was saying, "Look at me. I am a human being." And I think that that feeling of worthlessness was something that you know these were incredibly desperate people, and I can understand the. Um, wanting to leave somewhere where things are so bad and you hope that things will just be better somewhere else. I mean, that's a real migrant story. Um, but what fascinated me and what kind of drove my obsession after seeing this photograph was why people stayed year after year in the Dust Bowl areas. And, and the, the town that I focused on, I call Mulehead in the book, which is a fictionalized version of a, of a little town called Boyce City, Oklahoma, and the drought lasted for 10 years, and, and people stayed year after year just hoping that the next year things would get better. And I found that really compelling. I wanted to kind of understand what that new normal looked like once you were living in the Dust Bowl and once you decided that you were going to stay. Let me have you read uh, uh, page 8, if you would, at least uh, the, the, the major part. Till, till, till the break, yeah, you from... talk about a Dust Bowl. yes. Perfect. Yeah, this is from the, the first chapter with the Bell family. Bertie loved the musty sweet fruit and larded crust of mulberry pie. Before she turned toward the house, though, she saw what her father now saw. The clouds were not gathering overhead as they should have been. They were instead moving at them like a wall, 
the sun lost in a hazy scrim, the winds picking up, dry and popping with electricity, biting and raw against her skin. What in God's name? Her father squinted against the darkening sky, which turned brownish and then dark gray, even green in places where the sun was trying to burn through. It was midday, but it looked like dusk, the sweep of an otherworldly hand. Bertie started to cough. Fred, her mother said. I'll go, Samuel said. Get inside. He nodded his head to the old dugout, the two rooms they gouged from the earth, where he and Annie had first lived when they'd arrived as newlyweds. Almost fully underground, it was the closest thing they had to a cellar. He ran east toward Woodrow's place, hoping the boy had sense enough to head for home, if he even saw the clouds. Samuel knew his son could spend all day counting cow chips or following coyote tracks, oblivious, his face as open as a sunflower. Fred, he yelled, though it was pointless given the wind. Dirt began to blow. The world had gone dark and haywire. Dear God, Samuel thought, what is this ugliness? And this is, these are people who've gone out there to the Oklahoma Panhandle to, uh, you know, carve out a life for themselves, farming, and, you know, hard life, but... Uh, but a good life in some ways, and then, and then things change. The, the The only analog I could find, at least in my experience, not experience, but you know, knowing about, be dust storms yeah. in Phoenix. Did an interview, oh, uh, you know, last year yeah. with with a gentleman, or this year with a gentleman who was talking about urban planning in Phoenix. On the cover of his book is this what they call haboobs, um, a huge oh. dust storm bearing down on Phoenix. If if listeners Google Phoenix dust storm, you get spectacular pictures. I don't know. This might have oh. been what what these people experienced. Just yeah, scary. I think that's right. And I I think the what I read when I read some personal accounts of when the first dust storm hit certain areas. People really believed that this was the end of the world. I mean, they'd never seen anything like it, and I think there was um, a feeling that they were doomed. Um, and I think that, that that feeling also carried through that they were somehow, as they kept going, somehow being punished for something. You know, there was definitely a, a, a faith-based element here um, for a lot of these people who were, who, you know, most of them were very religious and, and felt like, how could... If this were not a, a, the hand of God, then how could he let it go on unless somehow they deserved it in some way? Hmm. Uh, you would feel very hel- helpless, I imagine. Yeah, so you, you turn to your faith, I suppose. Which, did that provide comfort for them, do you think? Or, or did they, they felt you know, like this was punishment, I guess? You know what, I think it's a little of both. I think that, that churches, um, you know, they... they they, you know, people continue to to hold steady to their faith and their churches. And I, when I visited the Oklahoma Panhandle recently to that to the town that I fictionalized, I mean, they had nine churches for a town of a thousand people. So it very much is still part of the the community. So I think that they are they they both clung to it, and then in their darker moments, feared that they were somehow to blame for for what was happening to the world around them. Give us, uh, uh, I guess, the scope of this. This was many states. This was a wide in scale and displaced. I don't know how many people. Oh yeah, you know what? Um, it's it's interesting. The so in the Great Plains and that you know that's kind of a wide area. But um, during the twenties or up until nineteen twenty nine, I mean, the, the farming of the Great Plains it was thirty two million acres that that were kind of that were plowed up, which kind of led to, was part of the problem and what, which led to the dust bowl. Um, and in, as far as numbers, I don't have a good, a good sense of, I'm not sure there's any real, I looked at census numbers for the particular town that I worked on and they lost about 30% of the town left uh, during that, during that period. And most, there was such an element of shame involved in both leaving and staying <laughs> I mean, the people who left, I think, were so desperate, and they thought that they were going to find something good, and often they were met in California. They became migrant workers and really, really struggled, and I think there was a shame there that they had both been too poor to stay and then ended up being too poor to go back. And so a lot of people didn't really know what happened to people who left. There was not a a chain of connection. Um, They were gone, and that was it. Um, But I will say that the town today, most people... um, at least the people I met, and I, certainly a large percentage of the population, either their parents or grandparents, and even a few people I met who were children during the Dust Bowl, so they, they all have a, a deep tie to this to this period. And I think it 
it's not only part of their mythology, but it, it has shaped them in certain ways. I think there are cultural, you know, through lines from the 30s to now of, of what keeps people there now, because it, it never was a great place to farm. I mean, when the homesteaders, they weren't giving away great land to begin with, you know, so it was not exactly prime farming land. You met a, uh, understand you met a 92-year-old man whose family had stayed through the Dust Bowl when you yes, went Yes, I did. He was wonderful. He, um, and he said, which was so, he put it so well, which I had not really thought about, he said his family would have left if they had any money. If they had money <laughs> to buy gas, they would have left, but mm. they didn't even have that. They survived on their own garden, and they had the basically eggs in their garden, and that just kept them through, and the, the kids worked the farm uh, through the years, and it was meager, but they managed to make it through, and he still lives there, and, and there's a real point of pride there, a real sense of, of self-reliance in this community. Hmm. So he and I guess a lot of people are, are glad they stayed, even though it was tough, or their I families, I think that's I right, and, and, and you know, like many towns in, in America, it is, it is a they are losing population. It is a, you know, I hate to say a dying town, but, but the, the trends are not good and haven't been for a very long time. But there's a real point of pride in, in a connection to land there that I found quite moving. And, and they want life to be kind of what they used to have. It's, and maybe they didn't ever have it, but they remember it as a certain way and they don't want to give that up and they don't want to move. This is very much a part of who they are. And that connection to the land, that, that I guess that's a central central feature of their lives. And, and I think a lot of people understand that. We talk about that a lot here in, uh, on this program. Uh, with, with oh, yeah, I can imagine. And I, and I, and I think for, for places in this country, particularly that have, a, that have a very distinct feel to them, I think of Salt Lake or in Utah in general as, as falling into this category of can have a real hold on, on someone in, in a way that, it's been able to maintain a sense of itself even in the age of globalization. I mean, I think when you're in Utah, you know you're in Utah in a way that you know you're not in, you know, in New York. <laughs> so oh, I think that very much the land and landscape shapes the way that, that people even just experience life. And I think a lot of our, our listeners understand, uh, especially if you're in a small town, and you were just saying that it probably... Uh, these feelings in is it called Boys City, yes. uh, the town that you base your your town of Mulehead on. Um, you, you you love your town, you love your place, but in some cases they're they're dying out. The young people are just leaving. Yeah. yeah, and I think when there's no, I mean, it's it's it comes down to a couple of things, but certainly largely economic. There are no jobs and no jobs for younger people, so the younger people leave, and then you have an aging population and not a lot. There's no there's no incentive for people to move into town. Let's take a break. When we come back, more with Ray Meadows. Her new novel is I Will Send Rain. It's based in uh, set in 1930s Oklahoma, the Dust Bowl. Many people are leaving. The Bell family makes the decision to stay, uh, and but their lives, of course, will change forever. Uh, we'll uh, get into talking about some of the characters, and uh, we'll talk about this key question: Do you stay or do you go? That's a question, of course, that uh, many people around the world are, uh, are deciding every day. And, uh, of course, that gets into discussion of, of refugees, which, which is apropos here. More following the break. This week on This American Life. In high school, Roy loved being a lifeguard at the beach. So he kept coming back, year after year. Now he's 66, still on the job. Nothing can stop him except, okay, maybe... Just describe it for me. It's a, an, a, an exaggerated thong, <laughs> for lack of a better word. One man stand against the Speedo this week. Join us Saturday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and the Utah State Historical Society. Helping communities connect to their histories through public events, including an oral history workshop and lecture on Southern Utah tourism in Cedar City on August 12th. Details at history.utah.gov. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Ray Meadows' new novel, I Will Send Rain, was inspired by a Dorothea Lange photograph. It's a story of motherhood and family, resilience, longing, fierce love, and hope. It's set in 1930s. Uh, it's the Bell family in Mulehead, Oklahoma, in the Oklahoma Panhandle, and they're dealing with the earliest storms of the Dust Bowl. Many people are deciding, do we stay or do we go? The Bell family decides to uh, to stay. Um, you're welcome to join this conversation if you'd like at 1-800-826-1495, toll-free 1-800-826-1495, or by email. Our email is upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Ray Meadows will be in Salt Lake City a week from today, Thursday, August 18th, 7 p.m. That's an event at the King's English Bookshop in uh, Salt Lake City. Ray Meadows, in, a, in an interview with the Republisher, you talk about doing research on the Dust Bowl, researching how uh, farming for so many areas went terribly wrong. This sentence caught my, uh, my eye. The erosion of everything, land, bodies, families, faith. It's not just erosion of land. Yes, very much. I, I, I think that um, what happens is the kind of that initial visible erosion, and I think for the Bell family, it really, the arrival of that dust really knocks them loose in a way. They were, they were kind of holding it together, and then when they have this, you know, this crazy environmental situation going on outside, they, they, they kind of splinter off in a way. And I do think it starts the questions. It starts the questions of, of faith and, and family and what keeps them together and all of those things that kind of set, for me, it set the novel in motion to see what happens to that family. Uh, let me have you read page 22, uh, just from the top down to, there's Birdie at the, the bottom there. Got to get into talking about uh, the characters here. Great. In their second Oklahoma spring, before the house was up, they dragged the mattress from the dugout. Annie never liked the feeling of being underground and had slept in the barn amidst the crisp smell of pine, the sighing of the horses. They pulled open the door, and in that milky celestial light, they would sleep, her leg over his, her head on his chest, her hand held in his. They had nothing, but with her body fused with his, Samuel had felt they had the world. Lately, though, Annie had grown remote, edged herself out of his reach. He feared that all these years later, a seed of regret had sprouted in the preacher's daughter. He watched her sometimes when she was in the garden, her arms whipped in, her back a graceful curve toward the plant she was tending. Gone was the softness in her hips she'd had when they'd married. She was carved now, sinews over bone. It startled him sometimes how much she had become part of the land, shaped and scarred and bound by it. But it scared him, too, how she didn't need him like she once did. And, Samuel said again, there was the slightest hesitation before she turned to him, the sun with the ends of her hair like fire. This is an awful thing, she said, let's go home. The explosions were finished and the smoke had begun to clear. A mosaic of charred feathers and remains now covered the ground. The man from Amarillo was already behind the wheel of his truck. The chattering festive mood of earlier was gone. Samuel watched his neighbors pack up their picnics. Now it was time to wait, and waiting, it seemed, was all they ever did these days. So I want to talk about the man from Amarillo and the explosions, but first to have you introduce the, your, your characters here. So Annie was a preacher's daughter. She could have had a different life, but she chose, yes. she chose Samuel, a, a farmer. She did, yes. Yeah. She could have had a more uh, contained life as it, she was courted by, by someone who her parents approved of, and, and he was going to be a minister, and it kind of fit with the plan. She, she was in, in Kansas, and she was attracted to the wildness of the idea of homesteading and this farmer who had nothing but had a great passion, and, and so she she broke with her parents to, to marry Samuel. But in the interview I referenced, you point out that like most women of her time and background, Annie has few choices. She did go against her parents in the, the choice of her husband, but uh, once she's made that choice, it's pretty preordained what her life is supposed to be, right? Exactly. And I, and I think when we meet Annie, she is 37, and, and she feels like her life is, set in a way that she has not 
questioned a lot. She's just not had the option to question what life would be like um, and what she doesn't think of herself. And I think like many women of, of her generation and um, socioeconomic background, this was just, this was something you did. And she didn't, she never thought that she had many options. She made her one choice and then that was something that she would live with. Mm. Now, as the dust storms intensify, the people are having to make a lot of choices and uh, the, the Bell family, each one of them will have to make, make choices. Um, so there's, there's Birdie, teenage girl. She uh, fancies herself in love with, with the boy and she sees him as a way to escape, I guess, from, from this life. Yeah, most definitely. I, when I began this novel, I kind of had this image in my head of Birdie looking out um, into the distance, and I always had this feeling that she was going to be this driving force of the one who really wanted to leave, who never considered uh, Mulehead as a life for her. And you're right, she she has kind of, you know, she's 15, and she is prone to to dreams and whimsy, and she has fallen for this farm boy and and sees him as her way out, or sees their relationship as as the way out of town and, and to have a life different than her mother had. And as, as a middle-aged man reading the book, I'm, I'm wanting to advise Bertie. I guess that's, <laughs> you know, as, as, as a young person, <laughs> I want to advise her too. <laughs> as a young person, you know, you have, you have these dreams and, and often those are very much changed, sometimes dashed completely. Yeah. And I think that she, as you, as you know, I mean, she's not, nothing is very thought out. I mean, she just kind of has these big, big ideas of what life would be like, but has no, no real road of how to get there other than this kind of fantasy of escape. So she very much has not <laughs> plotted any sort of real way to get out. Mm. Uh, Fred is the, is the son and he, he's got health problems, which are I guess we're are caused exacerbated by the by the dust. Yeah, he has. Uh, yeah, he has asthma that just becomes developed into dust pneumonia, which happened to many people. They called it the uh, the brown plague. They called it uh, during this time, and and many people died from it. Um, it was something that just from inhaling all this dust at all times, and the the body was just not able to clear it out. And uh, Fred did. Uh, I love this little detail. Uh, Fred is is got a kind heart. Uh, he apparently rubs lard on the combs of the of the roosters to prevent frostbite. He's he cares about these <laughs> yeah. animals. Uh, that little where did where did you find that detail? You know what? It, one of the fun things for me about being a novelist is just the endless research. I mean, you can go down a million rabbit holes. <laughs> you know, find out more than you ever wanted to know about various things. And I got reading about chickens because I knew that. Fred, this was going to be, I kind of imagined his connection. He has kind of a connection to animals. And, um, and I, had just, I had just read about, um, I didn't read about rubbing lard, but I did, I did read about how combs um, can freeze when it gets, and they can get frostbite. So I kind of imagined that Fred would do something that was thoughtful and gentle for these, for these birds that he tended to. <laughs> Fred's a, he's kind of a kind of an outsider, isn't he? He's got a rich interior life. Most definitely, and I, I and because he is mute, um, one of the things that I wanted to do with him is that to show that his interior was very rich, even though other people couldn't hear what was going on. I think his mom Annie knows that there's a lot going on in there, and but but he doesn't he cannot vocalize. Um, and I liked for I liked in the novel that Fred is a he's a vulnerable character, and I and I think that this he very much is a bellwether for the town and for the family. I mean, I I want people to kind of be anxious about Fred because the whole this whole community is in a very perilous position, and he is kind of the canary in the coal mine, if you will. You know, he just he's he's the one that that shows his fragility. I wonder if I have you read another passage. Um, hopefully this isn't giving away too much. Page 126. Um, Great. And from us, the half from, midway point, right? The midway point midway and then, then over to the, the next page. It uh, gets us into inside of Fred, but it also tells us a little bit about the, the father, Samuel. Fred would get to steer. That was what his father had told him. 
The rains would come fast and hard, the likes of which they had never seen, and the water would rise up and up and spill into the house and carry off the coop and knock down the barn. Fred had decided he would bring the chickens and the cows, even if the boat was only for the family. Noah had brought two of every animal on the earth, even cheetahs, even hippos, even boa constrictors, so Fred thought they could make room for their own. They couldn't just leave them. They didn't know how to swim. Two winters ago, one of the cows had gotten stuck in the pond when the water was too cold, and they couldn't get her out, even pulling her with the rope and the tractor. The water had frozen around her, and she died. A frozen cow in the pond all winter long. Now that pond was dry, he'd found her bones right where he'd seen her last and added them to his stack for the bone crusher. His father said he didn't know if they were paying anymore since there weren't many takers for the meal. Maybe next year. Everything was maybe next year. When the rain stops, Fred wrote, and Samuel said he didn't know what would happen, but that God would show them the way, just like he had always shown the way. They would plant again, and there would be no more dusters. Other people, Fred wrote, you ask good questions, son, his father said. I wish I had good answers, but I don't. Fred thought he would be sad if a flood washed Caroline Hollings away, because she smelled like honeysuckle and took the chalkboard he wrote on in school and drew flowers on it before giving it back. He wrote thanks, and she took it back again and wrote, you're welcome. Fred wore his mask out of the house, but then he took it off. Who wanted to wear a mask when other kids weren't wearing them, especially when you were already the one who didn't talk? He was tired all the time, like he'd been running through the night when he woke up in the morning. The mask just made it harder to get the air in. He wondered if his father was going to tell everyone about the flood. Fred thought he should warn them. It seemed like something people would want to know. It was probably good that Max had left, Fred thought, even though Bertie was sad all the time, and he, he, he was a little sad because he liked Cy and his little sister. He wrote to Bertie, what are you going to take with you? And she just rolled her eyes like he had said they were going to fly to the moon. You think all of a sudden it's going to rain from the heavens, she said. Have you been outside lately? A boat can't float on dust. Pop isn't thinking straight with the heat and the crops and the people leaving. He'll come to his senses. So this, uh, you know, what's revealed there is uh, Sam is going to build a boat. And he's uh, this connects in that he feels floods are going to come, which could be a fantasy, yeah. I'm sure, that people would, would have and, and, and wish, maybe not floods, but you'd, you want the rain to come again. This is connected, I believe, with, with Samuel's religious faith? Most definitely. I think for, for Samuel, his, the, the way that he reacts to the, the dust is that he turns more and more strongly to his faith, and he, he truly believes that he has been visited by God. And I think that he has these dreams of rain, and he believes just fully because he can't believe in anything else, I think, you know, that he has he just believes so strongly that the rain is going to come and that they need to build a boat. And I, it's a it's a huge uh, point of break in the marriage because Annie is not there with him. She does not believe what he believes. And to most of the town, he appears that he is coming unhinged in his uh, devoutness and his belief that in the middle of this desert, that that actual an actual flood will come. There's a bit too much. It's it's a bridge too far, I guess, for even for the the, the town yes. townsfolk. Exactly. Um, so, but it does bring up, you know, what what would the reaction be? Um, one reaction, apparently, it's it, in the novel here. You you hire a guy. That's where you have a, this man for Amarillo is what he's called, uh, who that shoots explosives into the sky, kind of a cloud busting sort of a thing. Exactly, and and this this really went on. I mean, I think there was not a great understanding. Um, I mean, there there was a saying at the time that you know the rains follow the plow. I mean, people really kind of believe that you plant more and the rain will come back. And and these these people would go around and say that they could cause weather by shooting explosives into the sky, and people did it. They they paid and they were desperate and they just you know, if to the to the layperson who doesn't understand the way that the atmosphere works, it sounded plausible to them that there was something they could do to cause something to happen up there for them. So I think, I mean, it's kind of incredible. It was incredible to read about and incredible that people believed it, but they did. Uh, and apparently this guy with these, with these, I guess, co-workers, they went around and Offer their yes. services for for a fee. You got to pay, right, to to these towns. Exactly, and you know, in the in the in the pre 
Internet days, the free communication days, there's no way of kind of, you know, the, if they had done this in East Texas, they, the people in, in Mulehead and the Panhandle wouldn't really know that it was a failure. You know, there, there, wasn't a real, there wasn't a good checks and balances system in place, so they could just kind of travel around and offer these pie-in-the-sky uh, solutions to people who were ready to take anything. In the book, uh, it seems like some of the townspeople are skeptical. They come out to watch the spectacle. Uh, others are, uh, but I guess you would hope. You'd just hope for anything. you just hope for anything, yeah. And in the book, I think that, that Samuel is skeptical, and the mayor is also skeptical, but, but you don't want to be the one guy who, who says it's not going to work if it works. And I think they, they all want to just hope that it works. Mm. And so, yeah, they all kind of... And I think there's such a strong sense of community, particularly in these really hard times where people depended on each other, that that if, you know, most of the town was going to go in and pay the fee, that everyone would go in and pay the fee, who you know, who could. As I've been reading and talking here, I've been thinking about parallels to today, this this intense sense of connection with the land and, and a sense of community must have taken a lot to, to, to pack up, to make that decision. That's a big decision. Of course, that's the decision people make every day and, and become refugees. Oh, my gosh, yes. And, and I think that the, the narrative is similar, you know, that there is a point of desperation of, of staying or going. And I think that you're right to leave, um, particularly to leave a place like Oklahoma and the Panhandle where they were given land and they farmed it and they knew these people in this town and to go to California, which is a very different, um, even just landscape wise, incredibly different. And they were not welcomed. Um, and there was no kind of, there was nothing waiting for them other than a lot of hard work for very little money. And, and I do think that that is a decision that people weigh all the time, obviously in the, in the, in the current world, whether to stay through really awful circumstances or to, to take the risk. I mean, I guess that that's what it comes down to, because there's certainly no known quantity that you will find when you reach the actual destination. And the, uh, you know, the opprobrium, the, the you know, the, the, the prejudice, of course, we're, you know, well aware of Grapes of Wrath and, and the epithet Oki, yes. you know. Um, yep. But yep. That, that's, that's I, what they're going into. It most yeah, and I and I saw photographs of of you know restaurants and and a movie theater that they would post signs that said no okies. I mean there was really a um, you know just blatant discrimination that we've seen obviously plenty of with, with various groups in this country. But it was surprising to me that that they were all kind of grouped under this okie label and that somehow they were recognizable because of the the way they dress and the way they look and their poverty that they were not allowed into places. One of the questions I ask you in this interview I've been referencing, I thought it was a good question, I'll ask you, do you think you would have stayed, or, or, or would you have packed up and gone? You know, it's, it's such a good question. I think that my, my nature, I would have packed up, but I don't, I don't at all see that as necessarily the right decision. I think in talking to, you know, the, 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 what you mentioned earlier, the, the man I spoke with, in Boyd City, Oklahoma, whose family had stayed. I think if you, if families had enough to say, if they had a garden, if they had an animal that could provide enough to get by, I think that's probably would have been the better decision. Um, I was very interested in that, in that, in following what happened to the woman in Dorothea Lang's migrant mother photo. She was, when she took that photo, she was starved. They were starving. She had, uh, seven children, and was working as a migrant farm worker. Uh, and I wanted to know what, how it turned out for her. And she made it through in that same way, but, but my sense was that it was never, she felt very shamed by that photo because of the poverty that it showed and that she never felt like it was a, a victorious uh, life, you know, that leaving was not exactly, you know, it didn't, it didn't do for her what she had hoped it would. Mm. You say, uh, you said other places, you have uh, this photograph that you described at the beginning of the program, mother nursing yeah. her, her child. By the way, it, originally it was, uh, there's a man in the foreground, but Dorothy Lang did a version where she cropped out the man, you can just see his legs now, to c- focus in on the woman. And you describe her as, as uh, you know, being determined and, and angry and, and uh, ashamed, I guess, all, all of those emotions. You have this on your 
in your office, right? No, on, on the wall. I do. I do. One of the, the, the most fantastic things for me in writing this book and doing research is that all of the photographs taken by uh, the government for this agency called the Farm Securities Administration during that year, for which, for, during the five, and Dorothea Lang worked for them for five years. Because they were taken for the government, it is all public domain, and it, it's an incredibly rich resource, um, of the archives of these pho- photographers. And because they are public domain, I, I am able to get a print of the photograph. You know, I can have a print made of the photograph, which is pretty extraordinary. And um, I have it on my wall. I think it is a great reminder for me about uh, not only for this novel, but just in general how inspiration works and how when I feel like I have nothing to write about, I know that something like a photograph can spark uh, a much larger idea. So I'm, I don't know whether you're thoughts and feelings about this photograph that's hanging there have changed when, you know, now that you've done the book, thought about the, the character sort of based on this woman. What what does it mean to you now? I, you know what, I feel very indebted to that woman. I imagine that her life was just so difficult. And I think as a mother, and she's in this, you know, she's nursing her child in this picture, and you can see in the details of the photograph that she's tried to make this roadside camp somewhat like home. And I, and I can imagine the anxiety of trying to, particularly now that I have children, to, to keep her children going in a way that when you have nothing, it's just got to be devastating. And I think when I think about her now after um, the research and after writing this novel, I just, I just hope, for good for her. I don't know what, you know, Dorothy Lyon did not include her name and there's no way to ever know what happened to her, but I just hope that she found something uh, good and easy at some point in her life because it, it is a lot to ask of human beings to, to live through this. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of your themes in, in your works is, is what does it mean to be a mother? Um, and, and certainly that's in the character of Annie Bell. She's trying to keep her family together. It's they're, they're moving in different directions, and, and perhaps, you know, one of the dangers is the, the whole family might have to pack up and, and move. But that, that, um, that does seem to be a, a theme in your works. Yeah, it definitely is, and, I, and certainly it, it is because I have children. I think that that has shifted my focus some. But I, I, I think as a, as a character, Annie was appealing to me partly because she does have to she is trying to hold her family together and she feels so strongly for her children that she feels like they are in some ways out of her control. And I think that's something that all parents feel. Um, They feel both anxiety and worry for them. Um, But I also like that she is, she is a mother, but she is also a woman and that she is starting to have these kind of more, exploratory thoughts that she had never had before and never allowed herself to have. So even though they are, they are worrisome and potentially dangerous to this, you know, in a way to the, to the family unit, I like that she is looking at herself and thinking about how she actually feels as opposed to just doing her duty all the time. Yeah. She has, has an attraction to this, this cloud busting guy, right? The man from Mandarillo. She, she does. Yeah. <laughs> and then she has a real attraction. She, she, is very tempted by the attentions of the mayor, um, and that, and it's also I think he is attracted to her because he is from Chicago, and he, for her, he offers some kind of different life that she might have had, and I think that she daydreams about what life could have been like if she were a city girl and had had not married young and and been a homesteader's wife. Mm-hmm. I think most of us, at some point in our lives, don't we? We 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 have those daydreams. We wonder what it would have been like a different path. Definitely, yeah, yeah. And I think for her, it it, is, it feels very dangerous to her to even think about these things because it it feels um, like she is being disloyal to even go there with her, you know, with her thoughts. Just have about a minute left, so just very briefly. I'm curious to maybe have you follow up with what Boys City is like now at Oklahoma Panhandle. What, what, tell us just briefly about this this area now. Oh gosh, yeah, I went on a life changing trip there last summer. I I went with a photographer, this wonderful photographer named Christina Page, and we went to see what 
the town was like. And I found um, I found the people to be incredibly warm and generous to me and open about talking. They're also, I would say, um, which is appropriate for the current political climate, they're very angry and, and I think feel that they have been lost in a certain way. Um, but I also felt that tie to the land and, and that I found it incredibly beautiful there in a way that I hadn't expected. I was used to the black and white pictures of dust storms and to see the wide open grassland was, was quite extraordinary and, and I loved it. And I'm actually hoping to write my next book about um, Mulehead again, but in the 21st century. Um, so I'm hoping to kind of make a connection through the generations. Interesting. Well, the, uh, the book is I Will Send Rain. It's a novel by Ray uh, Meadows. It's out now, and uh, Ray Meadows will be in Salt Lake City. She's headlining an event at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on Thursday, August 18th at 7 p.m. Ray Meadows, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom. A real pleasure. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. The minute you set foot in the streets of downtown Salvador, Brazil, you are met with the sound of these drums. These are the drums of Oludum, sounds that have become iconic of the Afro-Brazilian identity and culture of this colorful colonial city. Since 1979, Oludum has worked in Salvador to provide opportunities to at-risk youth through music, singing, and dance. Over the years, the organization has garnered international recognition, and their drum corps has worked with global stars like Michael Jackson and Paul Simon. Our Utah State University crew spoke with Antonio G. Jesus, manager of Oludum, to find out more about the work that his organization does with the communities of Salvador. The Oludum School is a social project that works with kids and teenagers from 7 to 16 years of age. It began as a social program for the communities of Salvador. Nowadays it is not only in Salvador but in other metropolitan areas. We provide workshops in dance, singing, percussion, choir, cultural production and leadership training. We work to build student self-esteem, which can be very low. They come here to do a workshop in percussion and then start growing in other ways at the school. They will have opportunities to travel, to meet other friends. There is one big problem that we solve a lot. Many kids who did not know how to read become literate here, even though this is a cultural school and not a formal school. The Oladum school has no ethnicity, all races, all ethnicities, white, black, indigenous. Everyone who wants to participate is always welcome here at the school. Oludum has also played a central part in the revitalization of Salvador's historic downtown district called the Pelorino. Before UNESCO declared downtown Salvador a World Heritage Site in 1985, the area had fallen into utter disrepair and was considered a very dangerous part of the city. That same year, Oludum moved into the area to provide opportunities to those kids who were deeply affected by poverty, crime, and homelessness. The Utah State crew took a drum class from one of Oludum's first students, Gilmario Marquez Giandraggi. Gilmario grew up in the Pelorino neighborhood and was recruited by Oludum at the age of 15. He now works as a drum instructor and is dedicated to providing kids with the discipline and self-esteem necessary to keep them off the streets. I have been part of Olodum for 34 years. Olodum is my life. I was born and raised in the neighborhood. I saw everything. I saw what was good and what was bad. The first show that I played was in 1987. And we traveled to Brasilia. We have traveled by bus, truck. We played for bread, for soda, for everything. We always enjoyed it. Of course, nowadays it has gotten better. You've now seen this organization, somebody 
back there worked hard to get it to this point. That's why many artists came from all over the world. The important thing in our lives is as follows. Each acts in a way and reacts in a different way. If we could always do good, people, regardless of their skin color, be it black, white, or Indian, we are all equal. We have one heart. The only difference we have is social class. Those who do not have the opportunity to learn or study and those who were born with better opportunities. The important thing is the coexistence of people. And that is what you are going to take from here, from me and from others, and what I all take from you. Today I am a good man because of music. And now I always say, I owe my life to Olodum. This is Jason Gilmore with USU students Brianne Charlesworth, Mikhail Law, and Elizabeth Thomas with translation help from Haido Arias for Utah Public Radio. Roots of Brazil is made possible in part by our members in the USU Office of Global Engagement, providing services for international students and scholars, and facilitating study abroad opportunities for students and faculty. Details at globalengagement.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community of everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at www.utahwomensgivingcircle.com. Did you know that people in healthy relationships have certain qualities in common? They manage their time, they're good listeners, and they put away their phones during a conversation. They show empathy for their partners, they're responsible with money, and they deal well with conflict. They know how to handle stress effectively and work with their partner as a team. These skills can make or break relationships. If you do not feel you have the tools to be successful in a relationship, you can learn. You can take a relationships class or go to a professional like a marriage and family therapist or a family finance counselor. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.